If you can solve your own challenges by scripting together and using the data that's in front of you, then that's a very powerful idea. We want to be one of those companies that we read about. We want to create something that has that brand value, one of those represented titans in Silicon Valley. And so as a result, we're, we're driven towards whatever it takes for us to get there. I've done probably two or three fundraisers that completely failed, where I probably spoke to 40, 50, 60 investors on each occasion, and it didn't work out. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm delighted to have Rich Waldron with me here today on Founder Real Talk. Rich is co-founder and CEO of Trade.io. Trey is ushering in the era of what Rich calls the automated organization. Trey enables non-technical users or citizen automators, as Trey calls them, to quickly integrate the myriad cloud solutions that every company runs today to easily build and streamline bespoke workflows among all these apps. I first heard of Trey from several of my portfolio companies who told me they were using Trey to help build custom marketing and sales-focused workflows. Puneet Agarwal from True Ventures, who's a good friend of GGV and founder Real Talk, had led the seed round in Trey and upon my request, introduced me to Rich. We first met in early 2018. After speaking to several more Trey customers and meeting Rich's co-founders, Dom Lewis and Ali Russell, I offered to lead Trey's Series A financing. Although it was competitive, Rich luckily chose to work with me and GGV. Lucky for me, anyway. It's been a tremendous 15 months. The company's been on a proverbial rocket ship of growth and just recently announced a successful $37 million Series B financing, which GGV participated in over our pro rata. The round was led by Spark Capital and included new investor Meritech as well. We're going to talk about all this today. Rich, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks, Glenn. Great to be here. Awesome. So first, I wanted to talk a little bit about Trey's origin story because it's pretty unique. Although you just raised your Series B, You've actually been at it since 2012, almost a full seven years. So talk to us about the early days. How did you decide to come together with Ali and Dom, your co-founders? What problem were you guys trying to solve initially? And, and when did the vision for Trey become clear? So I actually got to know Ali originally about 15 to 16 years ago now. We met at university and uh, we kind of hit it off. We were from a part of the UK that doesn't have a kind of burgeoning tech scene and, and certainly isn't known for its startup culture. But we were obsessed and, and kind of loved working on projects together. So my background is that I was a pretty lousy engineer, but a very product focused guy. Ali was a fantastic engineer. And so we had a very good kind of balance between us. Uh, we met Dom in 2009, and the three of us were, you know, aligned in how we thought about the world and, and the kind of company that we would ultimately want to build. And so we actually started working together around 2010. We ended up starting Trey in 2012 after a couple of years of working on initial ideas and trying to figure things out and really bootstrapping all of that to get to the point where we felt like we, we had something that, that we could really take and grow. So. 
The original idea for Trey was that we could enable you to build workflow around email. We had a lot of problems with staying on top of our inbox at the time, and we found that by kind of interconnecting our email with the different APIs and, and sources that were out there, we would get a lot more context from the messages that were coming into to our inbox. That was the trigger point for us kind of starting the company and, and, and embarking on this journey. Along the way, you know, we ended up pivoting to where we are today, and that was the thing that kind of drove us to, to get to this point. So it started, the initial spark was actually to solve a problem you guys were having yourselves. It sounds like the vision for the company started to expand beyond just email. How did that happen and why? Yeah, totally. So we were working on this email problem and, and kind of running away with it, as it were. The, the company actually started to grow. We had a lot of users sign up around kind of 10,000 or so. And, you know, people were building these rules around their inbox. As that started to happen, we were realizing that, okay, if you can make it easy for people to start pulling in data from different services and using it in an email context, that's very powerful. But what if you can essentially do that with all of the services that you're using? Mm -hmm. And you're able to do kind of like a, a visual programming tool of every service that you use and all the data that you have accessible to you. And so the real first kind of big change for us was when we went out to fundraise. And, you know, I was fairly intimidated about the process. We were three guys from the UK that had come out to the valley and, and we're trying to kind of build a reputation for ourselves and, and, and get intros and, and get that momentum going. And uh, I just found the whole process kind of hard to get my head around. So the way that we approached it was to say, well, we've had all these folks sign up for our email product. Why don't we see if there are any investors that already use the product? Mm. So we wrote this script. It pulled all the data out of MailChimp. It compared that with the uh, AngelList API. And we ended up with an output CSV of a, a group of investors that signed up and trialed our product. We then built a kind of email mechanism to outreach and, and get the uh, intro set up. And it was that process that led us to making a couple of early connections. And that's where we sat down and said, okay, this is super interesting. If you can solve your own challenges by scripting together and using the data that's in front of you, then that's a very powerful idea. Wow. So you actually hacked the process of getting into OVCs, you used your own product, and that gave you more ideas for how to better use your own product, maybe how to expand it. That's, that's uh, hard to get your brain around, but very, very creative. Yeah, totally. And you know, the, the sort of knock-on side effect of that was that you know, we had quite a few issues with getting those scripts to work. So there were issues with the different structures of the APIs for these services. I think one potential investor ended up getting 12 of the same email, which was Whoops. not a great first impression. Yeah. <laughs> And that is kind of one of the challenges that, that was highlighted to us about why this is such a kind of tough product to build. You have to solve for the data structures of every company, the, the APIs that uh, exist and the different attributes to them. You have to be able to handle the, the failure rate of all these different services. And if you're gonna build a great product, this stuff has to be rock solid. There's no way you can be in a situation like I was where I had to embarrassingly admit and say, hey, looks like our you know, automated email scheduler didn't quite work out. Sorry about that. You know, that impression cannot happen in a, in a work environment. Right. I've seen a lot of live demos and live demos usually go wrong. Uh, this is like one step beyond that. It's beyond the demo. It's the actual production product going wrong in front of a, in front of a potential investor. But uh, sounds like was uh, ultimately successful, but I did want to ask you a little bit about financing because you guys raised very little capital in the early days. Was that by design or was that just a result of a, a fairly difficult situation? And either way, how did you manage on such low budget at the beginning? 
Yeah, so it definitely was not by design. I think when it comes back to picking your co-founders and building a team like that, the fact that the three of us had a such a history together and a, and a really kind of strong friendship, it sort of enabled us to get through some really difficult kind of early years. So you know, the first, I guess, 18 months of the company, we were essentially self-financed. Uh, I was actually selling Wellington boots on eBay and doing a trip three times a week to go and get those shipped and bring the money in to keep our just to keep us alive and, and pay the rent and, and everything else. How all good startups start with a Wellington boot side business. Yeah, I mean, it rains a lot in the UK and uh, <laughs> there is a lot of festivals in the summer and you know, that, was our, that was our opportunity. And I think that, that kind of bond that we built during the, those early years where you know, we didn't start a company in a very smart way. It's not like we saved up and said, right, we're going to make a go of this thing. We have a runway. We essentially came together and said, hey, we really want to get something done. Let's just go do it which is definitely a lot easier when you're a bit younger and, and you don't perhaps have, have as many responsibilities as you do slightly later in life. But that enabled us to come together and kind of get through some, some tough times, you know, living on each other's couches and, and, and finding a way to bootstrap and fund the company. It just kind of gave us that drive and determination to, to build the product. And you know, for folks like us, the engineering challenge was pretty great, and it really needed us to be able to kind of rock in and, and, and get stuck on that for, for a good amount of time. Mm. And I think had we sort of rushed ahead and, and taken a load of capital, I think we, it would have changed the way we went about building the product and ultimately would have put us in a worse position today. That's super interesting. And it sounds like you had to lean heavily on the relationship that the three of you guys had with each other as co-founders to get through some of those tough times. And you even talked about strong friendship between you. And we've had Elad Gill on prior episode of Founder Real Talk. And one of the things he mentioned that I love as a framework is as a founder, he says you have three jobs, raise capital, set strategic direction, and don't fight with your co-founders, right? He didn't say though, be best friends or be good friends with your co-founders. He just don't fight. You guys, it sounds like have taken it to the next level. You're, you, you consider yourself friends. Has that been helpful to you? How do you guys complement each other? And when you do have tough moments, and I know you've had many, or disagreements, how do you deal with those as uh, three founders in a business? Yeah, I think for us, it's been so important to have that friendship. You know, I, I honestly don't think the company would have survived or got through the you know three or four years of tough grind to, to get to a point where we really started to grow without that strong bond. And ultimately, you need to be in a position where you're all completely aligned on what you're trying to do and, and how you're going to get there. That makes any potential disagreements or, or any uh, any areas where you're not quite on the same page much easier because you share that aligned goal. And for the three of us, we knew where we wanted to get the company to. And so if we had a disagreement, it was handled very respectfully and it doesn't ever impact your friendship. And the, the nice thing about I guess starting a company with your friends is that it's far easier for you to disagree and have a very radical feedback loop and, and kind of say things that would perhaps be uncomfortable if, if you didn't have that history together mm -hmm. because you, you come from a place where you already know each other, you understand uh, each person's personality and as a result you know that you're ultimately trying to do the same thing. There's no kind of game playing or structure or power struggle. It's okay we all have you know incentives and we're all trying to get to a certain position and we know that it's not coming from a place of mistrust or anything like that. No, that's, that's great. Has the friendship evolved over the last five plus years now as you guys have really gotten into this? Uh, completely. I mean, we've been reliant on each other. You know, mm -hmm. you, you understand the different things that's happening behind the scenes for each person. You can make allowances for that. You know, as a 
co-founder gets married or has children, which has happened between the three of us in, in different ways. And that understanding and, and that kind of bond is extremely powerful. And it really defines the culture that you build within the organization, mm-hmm. because people understand the resilience and the competitiveness of us as a group, and that we value friendship above almost anything else as a, as a grounding uh, value that we hold as an organization. Cool. I want to revisit culture in a minute. But next, I wanted to ask you a little bit about geography. I can tell from your accent, you're you're from some other place than where I grew up. And it might be, I don't think it's Alabama. I think it sounds like it's more UK. And that was where you guys got started. It's where you still have a significant presence. Tell us a little bit about the decision. It sounds like you came to Silicon Valley to try to raise money. And ultimately, you did raise money in Silicon Valley. Hence, our relationship. But what was the decision like to come to Silicon Valley? And when did you make that decision? And how did you decide amongst the three of you who would take the trek and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so the decision to come to Silicon Valley was you know, one of the, I guess, founding aspects of the, of the organization. When me and Ali would read TechCrunch in 2006, 2007, or, or there or thereabouts, you know, we were absolutely inspired by the history of the place, by the kind of companies that got built, and by the way it seemed from the outset that, that things were done. We didn't have a similar experience in London. I think the UK has an incredible engineering talent and there's a lot of really wonderfully talented individuals, but we don't have the rich heritage and approach to how companies get built. And so whilst we came to San Francisco and and Silicon Valley from a predominantly financing perspective, we also felt like it was the kind of place that would actually enable us to build the sort of technology that, that we wanted to and build the kind of company that we wanted to. And so making that decision was very easy. The balance that we now have means that we have the great engineering and product culture that that we fostered in the UK and and that has its own kind of special sense about it. And over in our headquarters in San Francisco, we just have an incredible go-to-market team. There is a a ton of great experience in the area. There's a lot of inspirational companies around us. A lot of our partners and customers are here. And that's really helped us grow the company Mm. very quickly. Mm. So... Looking back on it, are you glad you made the decision to relocate HQ and have Dom move over, build out the go-to-market team? You're spending a lot of time here. You think you could have done this any other way, or or was this the right path for you? Uh, I believe it was completely the right path for us. Uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I think mm-hmm. certainly, you know, we're a SaaS, you know, B two B product. If you want to go and hire people that have expertise in building out a sales motion, building out a kind of marketing and revenue funnel, this is the best place in the world for that. And you know, there's a lot said about distribution of talent now, which I think is an important conversation. But the grounding heritage that exists here and just the level of competency for carrying out these kind of go-to-market actions is unparalleled anywhere else. Mm, okay. How do you guys stay in sync you know that you have an office in in London and and roughly half your headcount there. Is it difficult to to keep the whole company kind of feeling like one and and rowing in the same direction? What kind of challenges does it present now that you're you're on in two continents um, and still a you know a startup company? Yeah, so this is a topic that I've thought a lot about, and what I've realized has happened you know organically and and is something that has been very valuable to us as an organization is that. Uh, each location sort of develops its own culture. And so as an organization, we're aligned by the values that we've laid out and and kind of how we we go about building the company. 
but the uh, the cultures that exist in the different locations are different. London itself has a product and engineering culture that has a very different structure to its day. There's a lot of uh, heads down time and and, mm -hmm. and 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 areas like that. Whereas San Francisco is kind of a mile a minute. It's a sales and marketing office. It's there's a great deal of, of activity, and the culture here really supports that. We stay in sync, you know, using video conferencing tools and ensuring that we invest in in great AV equipment. The challenges that exist is that you kind of lose that that opportunity to go over and, and just sit somebody down and, and, and talk through something very quickly. But the sort of side effect of that is it makes you more diligent in how you communicate and the kind of uh, asynchronous discussion that you need to be prepared for and, and, and in, in order to be able to kind of work effectively. Do you guys try to, uh, do you have sort of a, a program where you try to get people from one office to the other or do you do an annual full company get together? Are there ways that you try to solve for you know, the, the physical distance in other hacky kind of ways? Yes. So it's certainly something that we've done a lot more of recently, but um, getting people to go between different locations is really important just mm -hmm. because the relationships get built that way. And then when you're communicating with that person by phone or video or whoever else, you have history uh, behind you. You've already kind of met and got to know each other. And so we're regularly sending folks between uh, both locations. We're looking at putting together our first kind of uh, off-site slash retreat and, and trying to get everybody in the same room because I, I think that is really important. Yeah, I know the, the HashiCorp guys, who, as you know, are extremely distributed, do a, a, an annual gathering where they still get everybody together. They're up to close to right around 500 people. And so it's getting harder and harder and more expensive to do, but they're still, they're still making that commitment. I'll be curious to see how it goes for you guys if you get everyone together. So Rich, tell us a little bit about Trey. You talked before at a high level about uh, the opportunity you saw when you started the company, but it'd be great to hear about the problems that your customers are having and why they use Trey and how their lives change as a result. Sure. So the key for us is that we empower line of business users to be able to build complex integrations between the many services that they've bought today. And the way this has worked historically is that you're a marketing leader or you're a marketing ops person. You recognize that if you want to build a uh, complex lead routing or lead scoring model, you would be able to take the data that's stacked in the 20 or 30 different tools that you use and use that to find that insight and build out what becomes a very important model for your revenue funnel. If you were going to go and do that, you would typically go to your IT org or you'd go to your engineering org. Somebody would build an application. You go through a very long process. You're then bound by the initial kind of prototype that you've built out. And it, it's very slow to get that work done. Right. Uh, the focus for us is enabling those folks to be able to use the APIs of this different platform and essentially gain programming skills without being engineers. They don't need to figure out how to write and build an application, deal with the hosting side of it, consider all of the different um, failovers that happen with the API side. It's looking at it from a purely business lens and saying, okay, what happens if I was able to do this? If I can get the data out of these tools and I can use it to be more productive or gain insight in some way, uh, we're putting that power in the hands of the end user mm. rather than enabling an, an IT org to go and do this on behalf of a, another aspect of the business. So there's, there's a lot of talk these days and venture capital excitement around the themes of low code, no code. Do you feel like Trey's part of that movement? Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, 
when we go back to the roots of the company, one of the projects that really inspired us was Yahoo Pipes. Uh, and mm. that was a great example of trying to build that kind of visual programming structure. The, the low-code movement, I think, is really exciting because it's all about putting the the power of, of engineering and the power of programming into the hands of folks outside of that organization. And that allows people that have really specialist skills to do very powerful things. I think the first sort of aspect of this is when you know spreadsheets really became a thing that that really changed the way that folks were able to build complex models or or carry out almost engineering like tasks using formula and 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 pivot tables and different types of execution i think this is very much the evolution of that and we're seeing more and more of it in the market today yeah that was sort of the birth of the knowledge worker and now we're seeing the knowledge worker look more and more like a developer without necessarily having the skills of a, a traditional developer yeah, I think we're we're seeing this ops role appearing everywhere now. You know, every department mm, has marketing ops, sales ops, business ops. These are people that are technically savvy. They have a great insight in how to configure and, and get behind the scenes of products, but they're not engineers by definition. And the more and more of these folks that we're seeing, the better the productivity is of the organizations that they're serving. Cool. Well, listen, the integration space is not a new one, right? You've got lots of competition. True, many of the competitors sell to IT and get in the door that way. But this problem is well understood, and there are lots of technologies out there that address broadly the the integration challenges that companies have. So given that there's noise in the market, how do you guys try to rise above? Do you pay much attention to your competition? And if so, um, what, what do you do about it? You're completely right. There's a lot of history to this space. We saw with the MuleSoft acquisition you know, last year, that was really the evolution of a TIBCO and an IBM before that. Right. There's a, a, a long history of companies that have built integration solutions, and they've all been focused on IT orgs and engineers. They are taking you know, complex data that is on-premise and taking it up to the cloud. Where we haven't seen much evolution is in the kind of line of business user, the, the persona that we're focused on. And so in terms of that differentiation and setting ourselves apart, we're really focused on how we take uh, your, your traditional programming functions and the structures that you see in other integration platforms and you consumerize them for a different market. A great example of this is you know, historically, if you were going to build an integration uh, solution or an engineering solution, you would have something like a, um, a version control aspect to the, to the product. In Tray, we have workflow rollback history. It's much like using Google Docs, and we're trying to replicate the, the great advances we've seen in kind of consumerized enterprise software within the integration space. This is super challenging because you're trying to take what is a complex approach and and people need to understand logic to get there. But if you're able to do it, you enable a completely different type of worker. And the results that we've seen are that you develop a huge amount of love for the product because of what it allows you to do. Mm. We've seen people get promoted multiple times within, within their organization because of the ways in which they can hit their objectives or tackle things that previously they never would have been able to without a product like Trey. Maybe you're starting to answer my next question, but despite the fact that there is a lot of noise in the market, the growth at Trey has really been phenomenal. You know, we invested roughly 15 months ago, and if I look at just the growth curve since then, it's been a thing of beauty. And uh, I don't want to take credit. I know correlation and causation are different things. Uh, It definitely wasn't GGV's capital that uh, helped catapult the company forward. But what do you think it's been? Why has this company really hit on such a tremendous growth curve in the market? 
There are many factors to that. I think the support of the board and, and the investors we've had along the way have, has, has been huge for us in forming that kind of go-to-market action. You know, in truth, we really spent four or five years building this product and the quality of the product and the trust that it, it has built up with our customers has been the thing that has kind of triggered a really strong word of mouth. It's enabled us to go into uh, great, well-known big companies. They've been able to build workflows that have become mission critical for them. And off the back of that, we've been able to use that in our own marketing material. We have great referenceable customers. And you know that sort of growth curve that we've been on has really been supported by the fact that the product's building such a great reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had uh, Stuart Butterfield from Slack on the program and Mikkel Svane, uh, founder and CEO of Zendesk. You know, two companies that have benefited mightily from great word of mouth and the momentum that comes from that. It seems like you guys are on the early part of that curve. Yeah, to sort of circle back to your earlier point about differentiation, Trey is a entirely inbound driven model. And that kind of word of mouth has, has been a huge enabler for that. That hasn't existed in the integration space historically. Mm. Those sales models are almost entirely driven by outbound activity. And for us, our customers being able to tell the stories of how they're being successful to each other has been huge. That's really enabled us to, to continue to grow and, and to continue to get that momentum right. Okay, so given that that's the case, given that you've had this, this good momentum, this good word of mouth, a lot of inbound interest, the preponderance of the customer base is kind of in the mid-market today. But you're starting to see larger enterprises get themselves into the funnel as well. Is that a surprise to you? And when that happens, is that something you're, you're trying to have happen? Is there, are there things you do to try to make that happen? And when you see enterprises, do you have to serve them differently? Or, or what, what are you noticing to date as the difference between serving mid-market type customers and, and, and larger enterprise? So I think the most interesting thing about this for us has been that enterprises actually buy software like Trey in the same way as a mid-market organization does. Oh, wow, that is interesting. And so the... Go-to-market hasn't changed to support a different type of uh, customer or size of customer in that way. I think what does happen is it changes the way that you run your customer success programs and you build out your your expansion org to support what is a a very different type of beast. Mm -hmm. And so from the front line of our go-to-market, we see enterprise customers buying in exactly the same way as mid-market customers. They are teams that look and feel exactly the same. The procurement process is very similar. It's when you start to get used in multiple teams that it's a change of approach for, for a larger organization. And that's something that we're starting to structure and, and build out about around today. But it's been great for us to be able to get the balance of you know, really strong, fast-growing mid-market companies and your kind of historic you know, large enterprises. And interestingly, the challenges that they face are the same as well. The way that they're thinking about growth marketing or sales automation is completely aligned. And that's down to really the, the explosion of SaaS products that we've seen and the great content that each one of these best-in-breed providers puts out. Yeah, and I know this was the case for Zendesk, who had, I think, an initial deal with Uber of two seats. And, you know, when it was Uber cab and eventually some of your, those small customers can become enterprises as well as, as has been the case with Uber and, and Zendesk. So you grow along with your customer base as part of the mantra here. Absolutely. We take the view that we're helping to support those companies that have that aspiration because we're enabling them to 
effectively build internal automations and workflows that will help them grow faster. You know, if you can let a machine carry out the work for you or do the analysis for you or build work that enables your team to focus on the things that they're really good at, then you're going to be able to grow much quicker and become one of those enterprise orgs. So as you guys have been growing, you know, the team has grown quite a bit as well over the last year or so. How are you trying to maintain that spirit that you built, you mentioned you have with your co-founders and make sure that continues to permeate the organization so that your culture doesn't fade and it remains strong and kind of continues to catapult the company forward as you grow? I think the way that we've been going about this is that, and it's definitely the advantage of having three co-founders, uh, is that you're really the embodiment of the relationships that you build and how you speak to each other and how you define culture is, 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 is represented by how the founders treat each other, how the teams are structured, how leaders act and work within the organization. And a big part of the cultural side of what we do is we're extremely focused and strict on our hiring process. You know, we're really focused on the types of personalities of folks that come in here. We really love that kind of humble approach, people that really want to get work done. And what we've seen from growing the organization in San Francisco is that folks are getting tired of hearing the same story over and over again about mm -hmm. hyper growth and quite an aggressive culture. We really like to frame where we've come from, the resilience that, that, we've, uh, that we've carried to date, and you know, where we want to take the company to and really building people around that. And when you can get folks that are, are aligned around that vision and understand where you're trying to get to, it really helps you tackle with any of the challenges that building culture can, can um, often present. Cool. As I mentioned earlier, you just recently raised a new round of financing, Series B. Uh, you weren't looking. Uh, the plan was to raise in several quarters. Obviously, this is a high-class problem to have when the market comes to you. But as you look back on that decision, how did you make the decision to raise early when the market gave you the signal that it was ready to invest? And you know, any, any sort of tips or advice you'd have for other folks that are going through the process with, with VCs that things have worked well for you? Sure. So that definitely is and was a high-class problem. I've done probably two or three fundraisers that completely failed. Uh, where I probably spoke to 40, 50, 60 investors mm. on each occasion, and it didn't work out back in the in the earlier years. So I, I certainly can understand, you know, when you're in that position and when you have that opportunity, how to kind of utilize it and, and ensure that you get the right outcome. The decision really comes down to a couple of key things. Who is the partner that we're going to be work with and you know who are the firm behind them? The most important thing for us at this stage is ensuring that we maintain a great balance as a board and we have people that are going to come and work hard and, and be a part of this organization. And so in this situation, we were able to build a relationship very quickly. The deal that we were able to structure was perfectly right for the company at this at this time. And I took the view of you know, the unknown is coming further down the line. You have the opportunity to get the deal you want in front of you. Fundraising is a, is a long process and it takes a lot of resource. By enabling us to do this quickly, we could get back to work. The company was growing very fast and we could really put those funds to use. So in this situation, it was a pretty easy decision. Um, I think the, you know, the tips that, that I would have for, for other folks is that 
whenever you're you're going out to market or you're or you're you're looking to get financing, there has to be a narrative that you're building around. There has to be a movement or an action that is occurring that presents and and pushes you towards the the end result of what you're presenting to an investor. Uh, an example of, of this may be if you're an organization that isn't at revenue yet and you have a vision for where you want to get the company to, perhaps you're seeing great partner engagement. Perhaps you're seeing folks that are saying, hey, we really recognize this problem within our customer base and we'd like to help you know, push you out to those customers because that supports us as well. That's the narrative that I would build the fundraise around because it presents that okay, we're on this path and uh, for where we want to get the company to, and this activity is happening that enables us to get to that stage. That's something that a partner and investor mm. can see and, mm. and really get behind. Mm. That's really cool. I'll give you some props. You know, you, you mentioned the importance of the partners you work with and, and thinking about how you build your board. I can tell you that, you know, having joined your board 15 or so months ago, I was really impressed, despite the fact that the company was fairly young, that with the, with the level of discourse at the board, the transparency, the fact that the three co-founders are present for each board meeting and you bring in you know, other execs from the company and give them an opportunity to speak at the board meetings. The fact that you had Puneet, uh, Mike Chalfin, you know, these are folks that really know you well and understood the mission and really had bought into the longer term narrative. And so when I joined, it felt like very, like a very cohesive group. And I know that you invested a lot of time in thinking about who should lead your next round. I think uh, um, Alex Clayton at Spark was a great choice and uh, excited to have him him join the board and having the Meritech guys, Alex Curlin, uh, be involved as well. I think I think it should be great. I've seen this go wrong at a lot of companies, so and, and it, and it can, can hold things back. And so it, it's it's been great. I think the time and energy you put into it is probably paying dividends, despite my involvement. Uh, <laughs> that that's. Absolutely not true, Glenn. Uh, it's been it's been really great to have you on the board for the last fifteen months. I think just on that, the culture and values that we lay out within the organisation itself absolutely is echoed through the board and the board structure. And if we were to construct a board that wasn't representative of that, you know, I'd be embarrassed to go back to the rest of the company and explain what our board meetings are like. Yeah. The the strength of that board is there to help propel the company to get to the shared end result that that we're all heading for. Cool. So speaking of the results you're headed for, you've even in this this past year have had a number of forays by much larger companies coming to you expressing interest in in your business. How do you guys think about the future and what are you trying to accomplish? Obviously when when big companies come and knock on your door, you have to you have to answer the door and at least listen. What goes on in your mind and what's the calculus there? So I think I'll be completely transparent here. Um, this is something that we hadn't put a great deal of thought into in the earlier days of the company. We love building technology. We really wanted to build something that, that was iconic and and felt like the companies that we'd read about or seen online you know, back in the UK. It wasn't until the first big company came knocking that you really have to sit down and think about it and, and, and really start to plan out the sort of organization that you're trying to build. Because you know, it's a very viable strategy to want to be part of a, of a bigger org at that time. For some folks, that enables them to bring their vision to life. Uh, for us, that was a, a defining moment because we sat down as founders and said, okay, you know, this, the outcome of this would be very beneficial to us personally, but you know, professionally, do we want to go and work at this company? Do we want to uh, lose the control over our product or our vision in this way? Um, and you know, it, was, 
it was an easy decision for us to make to say no because you know we really love what we're building uh, we really enjoy it the challenge of it and bringing it to life and so when we think about the future you know we go back to that original thought we want to be one of those companies that mm -hmm. we read about we want to create something that 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 has that um, brand value and, and and is one of those kind of represented titans in Silicon Valley and so as a result we're, we're driven towards uh, whatever it takes for us to get there it's really exciting to be involved with you guys given that that's how you think about the, the future I can say that and this is commonly forgotten but for most big iconic companies that have been built on the backs of venture capital most of those companies have had to say no to many other companies along the way to suitors along the way despite what would have been great economic outcomes for the founders and, and, and key executives at companies and those are hard decisions and they're personal decisions so it's never easy but you know people forget that when you're at the uh, proverbial end of the rainbow everyone believes that the grass will be super green there they forget that along the way there are a lot of tough decisions those are those are some of those decisions having to say no yeah i think that you know there is a ton of risks when you start or found a company but if i'm you know completely honest i don't think you really risk anything significant until you get you know somewhere into the journey and a company comes knocking and, and and lays out a really good offer the risk you take at that point is you know can you get to the next stage can you build the company that you're going to build and will you reflect back on that decision and think well maybe maybe actually that acquisition or, or whatever would have made sense when you kind of have something to lose that's when you're really taking a risk as, as a founder or as a, as a key exec in, a, in, a, in an organization in the earlier years you take a lot of risks in your personal life in your own kind of personal finance but once you have something where it's growing it's revenue time behind it your products out to market those risks are, are, are huge because that's where you're really betting on the future of the company okay well speaking of taking risks we're putting you on the hot seat uh, this is the, uh, let's call this the final speed round. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Give me the first thing that pops in your head. Tell us about your favorite book or website or anything you read that you'd recommend to other founders. Sure. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of business books. You know, some that have had impacts on me more recently. Measure What Matters by John Doerr has been great for us to mm. think about aligning what has become a much bigger company. Uh, but one that's had a more profound effect on me lately, which was actually recommended by our VP Marketing, uh, Alex Ortiz, is a book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. Uh, and it's the story of um, two psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And their, their study was on really you know, behavioral psychology. And the thing that really struck me about it is the uh, lasting impression that you lead in any relationship or in, in any event is the thing that is carried with somebody after it occurs. Uh, an example that's given in the book is you could have a particularly uh, painful medical operation. And if it was to be quite short, you would remember that as a very painful and, and difficult time. If you had the same level of pain for a longer period of time, but the last 15 minutes or so of it were um, less painful, you'll actually reflect on that in a more positive way. And when you come to recall it, you feel very different. And it's things like that that really make you think about the way that you speak to individuals, the relationships you build, mm. and even down to how you converse with customers or make product decisions. It's, it's that end result that really matters. And so that's just a book that, that has kind of stuck with me uh, ever since I read it sort of six months or so ago. Yeah, I do a, like my top 10 reads of the year every, every year on my blog, going long blog. And um, Undoing Project was on my list, I think, last year or the year before. I, I really like that book as well. Michael Lewis is one of our great, one of the great contemporary writers. Uh, how about a company or founder or CEO that you admire and why? 
Uh, so a company I really admire, and you know, this will sound like a cliche now, they've just had such a great IPO and there's been a fanfare around them, is actually Zoom. Um, the reason that great I really, one. really love that company is that you know, they're, if you think about what their marketing message is and how people uh, reflect on them, it's that the product just works. It works so well. You know, when you get on a call with something that isn't a Zoom product and people start saying, oh, it's not really working out, I often hear, can we just get on Zoom? That's going to that's gonna figure it out. And being able to build something like that is so powerful that, you know, the customer advocacy that they've built up, obviously the company's turned out to be you know, a great success and, and a real fanfare around it. But it, it's something that I've observed from the outside and, and really inspires me. Yeah, and I think... Uh, Zoom and, and a GGV portfolio company, Slack, in combination, have been the fabric, I think, for a lot of companies that have gotten more distributed, and they've helped sort of enable that, and that trend has also enabled them, those companies, to grow so fast, which has been, been interesting to watch. Okay, uh, how about a hobby? Something you like to do, just recharge your batteries. So I like to take some time out to listen to the Founder Real Talk podcast. <laughs> with uh, I didn't pay you to say that. <laughs> so, uh, again... Uh, this is going to sound like a cliche for a for an enterprise SaaS CEO, but I've taken up golf more recently. Probably for the main reason is it's one of the most humbling experiences that you can have. And uh, if you get out and you manage to spend a few hours uh, embarrassing yourself on a golf course, it's quite a nice way to reflect and and get yourself out of the out of the day to day grind. Okay, I'll I'll let Tiger know he needs to keep keep practicing then. Okay, last a top piece of advice that you've gotten as a startup founder that you would like to give to others? Gosh, so I've had a lot of, a lot of great advice over the years. And, and the, one of the nice things about Silicon Valley is the access to people that you have and the array of talent and, and meeting those folks, they often you know, impart really useful knowledge to you. I would say some of the most useful things that have been passed on is to just reflect everything back through the lens of your customer. And, and that doesn't just mean the customer success team that you build out or you know, the way that you send marketing emails. Every action that you take as a, as a company, you should consider how your customer will interpret that. Be it a new story, be it um, you know, a new product feature, you know, be it your phone manner when you reach out and you're prospecting in some way. Every interaction that you have and everything that you put out will be interpreted and will be considered. And it's very easy to forget that. You can get really carried away with brand building exercises and, 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 and building up momentum in a certain way. But if you kind of pair everything back to the, the simple communication and the way that your potential customer will interpret you, uh, I think you know that's, that's a, a really driving factor to how we make a lot of decisions around here. That's great. Rich, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm really looking forward to this episode coming out. Thanks so much for joining us here on Founder Real Talk. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. 
Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGVCapital or GGVCapital on WeChat. <laughs>